It is just for I'm back with you this Tuesday evening, the 17th of May. Yes, it is the 17th. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, shukran for joining me on the show this evening. I'll be uh, taking you through Editor's Forum. And uh, from after uh, the Waqt of Isha, we've got Yazid Kamaldin taking you through the Talking Point show until 9 o'clock. And he is looking at your pre-election coverage. And as the media and uh, South Africa's political parties prepare for the local government elections, of course, we are turning our coverage at least once a week to focus on the elections coming up on the 3rd of August, inshallah. Now, in Editors Forum, uh, this is usually where I catch up with our Muslim broadcasters around the country and we look at some of the issues they've covered, uh, as well as the more mainstream news stories and, and from what perspectives or what angles they may have uh, covered these issues. And uh, we get some in, uh, insight into the unique stories that they've covered as broadcasters. On the show tonight, we've got Faisal Patel from Radio Islam. Balna Suleiman Ravad is on a whirlwind tour of Australia. He's on a speaking tour there, so he'll probably only be back next week or the week after. We've also got uh, Sheikh Rafiq Hassan from Lotus FM and uh, Mohammed Sheikh from Radio Al-Ansar. Uh, his first week on the show last week, and he joins us again tonight. Hopefully, we can get CRI Radio back on air pretty soon. Now, without wasting too much time, let's chat to Faisal Patel from Radio Islam. He's in Istanbul in Turkey this week for a special conference called the Tawassal Conference. Uh, it's organized by the Palestinian Media and Communications Forum. And uh, our reporter, Umra Hartley, is also there as well. She arrived in Istanbul this afternoon and we're going to be touching base with her tomorrow, hopefully, after she's rested. Uh, we can uh, catch up with her and hear from her how the first day of the conference has been going. But nevertheless, let's chat to Faisal Patel in Istanbul. Faisal, assalamu alaikum to you. Wa alaikum assalamu Shukran so much for joining us. How's Turkey though? Well, it's uh, very nice. Yeah, um, a lot to learn. Uh, the language is a bit of a problem, but uh, shukran alhamdulillah, managed to find myself around and uh, so far so good. All right, so let us start with the conference itself. So that conference actually gets underway tomorrow, and I know there's quite a few South Africans that will be present. What is the purpose or the objective of this conference? Well, the the Whistle Conference uh, is a specialized meeting that uh, opens wide horizons for dialogue regarding the various media issues related to the Palestinian cause and provides an opportunity to discuss such issues objectively and professionally in an attempt to form a true image of the Palestinian cause in the Arab and international media. The conference also aims to discuss the most effective and successful methods and means to achieve an objective and fair portrayal of the Palestinian cause in various media outlets and creative programs. Now, it will be attended, as you mentioned, by journalists, writers, heads of newspapers, radio and television stations, correspondents, photographers, artists, and directors, as well as a large group of prominent intellectuals and figures from uh, the media and academic field from across the world. It's also an opportunity for those working in their various fields to meet, to exchange experiences, and communicate in order to serve Palestine and its just cause in the Arab international media. Now, the conference program consists of uh, several forums, which, uh, as I mentioned, attended by senior and Arab international journalists and addresses the priorities of Palestinian media information resources and how to confront the Zionist myths 
in the media. It also focuses on the opportunities in digital media. In addition to this, the agenda will also include a number of media workshops, which inshallah hope to attend, and specialized meetings uh, covering the various media fields, as well as a ceremony to honor a number of elite journalists who have uh, made great media contributions that have served the Palestinian cause. Now, the conference will also include an exhibition for media organizations and media service companies. So a lot of the world's media, I've seen people from Al Jazeera, I've seen people from the Arab world, uh, and inshallah tomorrow when it gets underway at about 10 o'clock, uh, we'll have this opportunity, uh, a great opportunity to interact with uh, some of the journalists uh, that were that all are on the ground in Palestine and in Gaza covering these stories. We know that uh, unfortunately uh, Western media tends to focus uh, more on Western uh, news-related items as opposed to the Middle Eastern news. Uh, give you a typical example like the Brussels bombing or the Paris bombing. But if something happens in Baghdad, won't it get? It won't get as much coverage as it would like to. And hopefully, this uh, forum will address some of the issues specifically uh, related to the Palestinian people, and hopefully get them more courage, and we can get people talking. And uh, with the with uh, the information that uh, we South Africans, uh, with the voice of the Cape Mara and myself, and many other South Africans per year, we can take back that knowledge and then educate our journalists back home in South Africa on how better to give coverage to, to the Palestinian cause. No, absolutely, Faisal. I think it is very pivotal that we get to hear from Palestinians themselves on how we should be covering Palestinian issues. I mean, it's very rare that we hear Palestinian voices um, within the uh, media environment. So I think that's going to be quite critical to attend. Just in terms of your trip to Turkey, I mean, what else has been interesting um, in terms of your experience there? Well, I know it's 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 people that haven't been in Turkey before. It is uh, it is considered to be the gateway between Europe and Asia, and it's a Eurasian country located on the Mediterranean, which stretches across the Anatolian Peninsula in Southwest Asia and the Balkan region of southeastern Europe. It also borders, uh, it's bordered by the Black Sea, the Marmara Sea, the Agency, and the Mediterranean. Uh, Turkey is a country of in-depth history and culture. Because of this uh, geographical location, uh, the mainland, uh, Anatolia, is... Um, uh, it says, what does a mass migration of diverse people shaping the cause of history? Uh, it's home, also home to countless of civilizations. Anatolia has developed a unique synthesis of cultures, uh, each with its own distinct identity, yet each linked to its predecessors through insoluble threads. As a modern nation in an ancient land, Turkey today is the inheritor and conservator of such an essential uh, shared heritage of humanity. Now, a lot of people won't know where Turkey actually got its name or what Turkey's real name is or might even know the capital, but it's actually called um, the Republic of Turkey. So, and also, uh, I think many listeners won't know that uh, did they actually think that tulips come from Netherlands. Now, it turns out that uh, a lot of people are wrong. There is more to Turkey than meets the eye. Between the beaches and the bustling market lies a wealth of interesting history filled with religious and literary figures, civil war, and a multitude of languages. And uh, these are some of the, just a few facts. Um, you know, the, a lot of the things that I knew about Turkey was just a blue mosque and a Tokapi museum, but there is more to it, uh, and, and uh, these are some of the, the, the interesting things I have discovered. Uh, like I mentioned, it had, it's actually been called the Republic of Turkey since 1923. In 1503, Leonardo da Vinci uh, submitted plans for a bridge across the Bosphorus. That bridge was never ever built. It's also responsible for 80% 
of the world's hazelnut export. And finally, Istanbul's Grand Bazaar or Kapali Karsi dates back to 1455 and was uh, established shortly after the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople. Now, over the centuries, it has grown into a warren of 61 streets lined by more than 3,000 shops and currently occupies a nearly incomprehensible 333,000 square feet of shops. So it's a lot of shops there. And you'll never possibly be able to exploit all, but it doesn't keep people uh, from, from trying. According to a magazine, Travel and Leisure, the Grand Bazaar was the world's number one attraction in 2014, drawing over 91 million people. And just on a tulip story, it's uncertain where the first tulips were actually grown. But what is known is that the Ottomans popularized the flower and facilitated the introduction to Europe. A simultaneous export of tulip mania, the seat of the world's first speculative bubble was sold in a Flemish ambassador to the 16th century court of Suleiman the Magnificent brought back the bulbous flower to Holland and other commodities that uh, Turkey is famous for, uh, which Europe owes a debt of gratitude, is uh, coffee and uh, cherries. And then there's one very long word, the longest word uh, in, 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 uh, in Turkish. Uh, it's tongue-twisting. It's 70 letters long. I'm going to try to pronounce it. It's called Muvafakiet Sizles Triseles or what it actually means is that as if you are from those we may not be able to easily make a make of unsuccessful one it is thought to be the longest word in Turkish and a, glu- a glutinate tongue twister whose dialects are spoken across the swath of Asia and uh, the way to western China yet the Turkish one what I've seen is pretty easy to pick up following a language from the 1920s it is simplified the vocabulary and movement from Arabic script to Latin uh, alphabet. So if uh, the listeners want to uh, try to pronounce that word, I, should, I think uh, they should take a chance and just Google it and see if they can pronounce it. Wow. Very long words, 70 wow. words. That is pretty amazing. Just out of interest though, Faisal, I mean, you've been roaming the streets of Istanbul. We know the Syrian refugee crisis is, uh, you know, Turkey's been one of the countries been at the forefront of taking in many Syrian refugees. I mean, did you make any observations? Very, very difficult. And if, if they are around, they they very, uh, I think, keeping it to themselves. But I can tell you one thing, that the security at the airport and in Istanbul, it's very, very high. To give you an example, when I landed at the airport yesterday, um, and normally what we do is you go through customs and you pick up your bag, your bag at the carousel. And to my surprise, when I got to the carousel, my bag was actually taken off and put on one side. And, you know, unless somebody really does it for you as a favor, I mean, or somebody might have taken it by mistake, I actually went to collect my bag, and when I picked it up, I was approached by a a Turkish police officer who asked me, uh, what am I doing in the country? And I told him I'm attending a journalist conference, and he he wanted to see the invitation. And then he asked me for my press card, which I had to produce. And then he went on further and asked if I'm Muslim. He also then demanded that I open up my, my bag. Um, you know, uh, the luggage that I just collected from the carousel. And then when I was uh, willing to do that, he says, uh, no, 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 never mind. Uh, you don't have to do it. You can go ahead. So I, somebody was telling me when I mentioned it to one of my friends yesterday is that they want to see whether I was uh, 
skeptical that we're going to have the bag or they're actually going to make a run for it. So these are some of the, the security features or police that I have seen in Turkey, especially at the Dokapi Museum and the Turkish mosque, uh, the blue mosque as we know it. Um, you know, soldiers and, and police uh, ready with their fingers on the trigger. Uh, but as far as Syrians are concerned, like I said, it's very difficult. I haven't seen any of them. And uh, if they are, they, they probably keep to themselves to talk about uh, the crisis. Uh, I was throwing hints here and there to see if they, I could speak. But uh, uh, I hope to make contact. I, I did speak to the Jamaat of Ulama. They have uh, uh, an orphanage, not an orphanage, but a, a refugee camp uh, just on the border between Syria and Turkey. And uh, there is a person that uh, they've told me to contact. So hopefully I will be speaking to soon to get some idea of, of the situation. All right, then. Now, if we move on now, one of the big stories uh, internationally uh, this past week has been uh, this blame game between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Iran now saying that their uh, nationals will now miss the annual Hajj and accusing Saudi Arabia of sabotaging the arrangements. Uh, we know that there's been a major diplomatic row following the deadly stampede at last year's pilgrimage. Uh, there was a delegation from Tehran who, were, uh, who held four days of talks in Saudi Arabia last month aimed at thrashing out a deal for Iranians to perform the Hajj in September this year. How are you analyzing the story? Well, from what I see is that the Iranians want special treatment, and, and that is something that the Saudis don't want to agree to. So because of that, Iran says that its citizens will not perform uh, this year's Hajj in Saudi Arabia because of these organizational details or by this failure by the Saudis to agree to organizational details. Now, th- this pronouncement that we see is a latest sign of discord between uh, the two rich uh, rival nations and comes after last year's Hajj. I was there uh, where more than 2,000 p- uh, people died or who judged died. 464 out, uh, of them were Iranian. Uh, they, they died in that stampede on the outskirts of the holy city of We've seen accusations flying. We've seen the media. Uh, again, it's very difficult to to understand what actually happened because Arab media is reporting one thing, and Iranian media will report something else. And we're trying to find the balance between the two. Now, according to Al Jazeera, a delegation from Tehran held four days of talks in Saudi Arabia last month, aimed at reaching a deal for the Iranians to go for Hajj, which is expected to take place in September this year. Now, Iran's official IRNA uh, news agency quoted a person by the name of Ali Jannati, and he's Tehran's Islamic guidance and culture minister, uh, whose ministry oversees the arrangements for Iranian Hujaj, is blaming Riyadh for this breakdown in talks. And he says the arrangements have not been put uh, together and it's now too late for it. Now, according to a statement uh, by uh, the state-linked news site, Sabat, the Saudi Hajj ministry says that uh, Iran delegation has refused to sign agreement, laying out agreement for this Hajj. Uh, for this year's Hajj. He says the uh, the statement also says that uh, the, the demands include the granting of visas inside Iran and transport arrangements that would evenly split the charge between Saudi and Iranian airlines. And um, Iran is, and this is according to the Hajj Minister, his name is Mohammed uh, Bintin. He says Iran is the only country in the world that refused to sign the agreement on the Hajj. It insisted on a number of unacceptable demands, so they want special uh, privileges. And Saudi Arabia and Iran sabotage for those that don't know. After protests in Iran attacked uh, Saudi diplomatic missions, they are also following the execution of a prominent Shia cleric in, in Saudi Arabia. And um, 
Iran wants, like I mentioned, Saudi Arabia to issue visas through the Swiss embassy in Tehran. Saudi Arabia's Raj Ministry, however, said that it informed the Iranians that they could only get their visas through the online system, which is used for, across the world. So everybody is doing it according to what the Saudis want, but they want issues, uh, visas to be issued in, in, uh, in, in, at, at the Swiss embassy. And the Council Ministry official said this is, is extremely, uh, well, they're concerned about it. It's, it's coming to a boiling point, um, you know, and, uh, uh, but the, the, the talks with the, with the Saudi authorities are continuing. I had put out a tweet last week sometime. I'm not going to read out some of it. You can check my Twitter handle. But uh, again, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of blame game going on. And uh, we just hope that uh, they can come to some sort of a solution because, uh, you know, Hajj is about uh, going to Makkah and Medina and coming out with a clean slate. We don't want to have any animosity or any, uh, you know, hatred for, for each other because we're all brothers and sisters in Islam. No, absolutely. Now, if we move back home, uh, one of the big talking points is the fact that South Africa's unemployment rate uh, just hit a 12-year high. Uh, the unemployment rate increased to 26.7% uh, percent in the first quarter of 2016, up from 24.5 in the fourth quarter of last year, according to the quarterly labor force survey. Wow, that's, uh, I mean, it's pretty gloomy from what the economists saying. What is your take on that? Yes, uh, that's exactly what the economists are saying and labor analysts as well. I managed to speak to Loan Sharp. She's a labor analyst. She says the worrying factor is looking at the number of people who have given up hope of finding work. That's the problem. Plus people who cannot find work who are looking for it, which is very, very worrying. You know, uh, and a simple admin job draws thousands of applications, uh, and it, it's very difficult. You're getting up to five, 600 people applying for, for the job, which is an admin position, probably filling out documents and, and whatever it entails. And then Loan Shop also, also says that South Africa is close to 8 million people in the unemployed category, and with additional legislation that's going to be passed, making the national minimum wage 4,500, this could Automatically raise the unemployment rate as workers earning below 4,500 could uh, become uh, vulnerable. So Sharp says that uh, the country's economy is weak. However, a lot of what is happening in the unemployment picture is in our own hands and in our own control. To quote her, she says it's a catastrophe. Nearly eight people are idle, and a large part of the results of misguided economic policies. And uh, she also says that the non-existent presence of the African National Congress largely attributes to the rise of unemployment at 90%. Uh, of the senior office bearers in the ANC come from the Tripartite Alliance. And to quote again, she says, trade union, uh, this, and communist that these two groups have specific ideologies, which has allowed them to take over leadership in the ANC, and they brought the ideology into economic policy, which consists of the minimum wage, unrealistic wage increases, and bargaining councils, which have been captured by trade unions and the Department of Labor. The experts are predicting, economists, labor experts, and many other experts in the field are predicting that by the end of this year, the country will see a further 285,000 job losses, and next year, a further 400,000 South Africans will be without jobs. So very, very concerning. We know that the matriculants finish their work, a lot of them go to, to study, but those that don't want to study are looking for a job, and currently to find a job in South Africa is extremely difficult. And again, uh, when the minimum wage comes in, you're going to demand a salary of, of 10,000 rand, and the same person gets a job for 4,500 rand, well, it's going to really create uh, uh, in a very difficult situation. And again, you know, if you've applied for hundreds of jobs, I think you become uh, scared and you become, uh, you know, uh, concerned that after 
30, 40 applications, you haven't found a job, it really does have an impact. There's a ripple effect which then passes on to the family and then eventually see a lot of people standing on the streets and begging and borrowing a lot of money. Uh, that affects the economy. We know that South Africans are seriously in debt. They're borrowing from one credit card to pay another credit card. And uh, we just hope uh, that uh, the economy improves so that we can get this unemployment rate down. Most definitely. And then finally, if we look at uh, what's happened in the UK, uh, the police were lambasted for using Allahu Akbar during st- training sessions. What is that all about? Yeah, basically what happened is uh, the UK police or United Kingdom police have come, come under fire. They conducted a training video which shows a masked man shouting Allahu Akbar before setting off an explosion in an anti-terror training exercise. Now, we've seen this before uh, and, and a lot of media reporting on it. Whenever a suicide bomber or whatever the case may be or a terrorist uh, does something despicable uh, or by killing people, he shouts Allahu Akbar and you know, attributes that act to, to Islam, which is I totally don't agree with. Now, uh, the, the, the training exercise reportedly took place at a shopping mall in Manchester last week, Monday, and comprised of about 800 volunteers. Now, the anti-terror exercise has received severe backlash. Uh, I mean, a lot of people in South Africa I know were, 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 were just outraged by it, and they called the act disgusting. There's a person by the name of Alicia. She tweeted, I'm disgusted by Manchester police using a lower word in a terrorism training exercise, once again uh, demonizing Muslims and Islam. And uh, the Muslim Council of Britain, the MCB, is, uh, his name is, um, uh, the person from there, his name is McDad Fancy, says by using a law but in a terror training uh, exercise, Muslims around the world are being associated with terrorists. And this is something that I've always advocated, I've always disseminated to listeners and to people that I've met, is that uh, all Muslims, one person's perfectly act, one person's terrorist act, one person killing people in the name of Islam is not a reflection of you and I or any Muslims across the country. We do not stand for this. And unfortunately, if this is the training exercise, it's going to be a reflection on Muslims. They are using, people are using it at the moment, they're blaming Islam and all Muslims for one person's act. So the um, Assistant Chief Constable Gary Shewan from uh, Greater Manchester Police says that while the exercise was based on a suicide attack by an extremist, Daesh or ISIS, ISIL, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, the use of the word was unacceptable. Uh, and Allah word translated means Allah is great. It, you know, it's but the context, these terrorists are using it in the wrong context. But again, we, we're using Allah's name, uh, or these people are using Allah's name in, in, the, in the act of Islam. Now, and then he says, on reflection, we acknowledge that it was unacceptable to use this religious phrase immediately before the mock suicide bombing, which so vocally linked this exercise with Islam. And he apologized. He says, we recognize and apologize for the offense that this has caused. And police say there was no specific threat in Manchester, and the exercise was devised in December, a month after the terrorist attacks that killed 130 people. So, you know, and last week we were talking, and in this week, I think Voice of the Cape Company as well, there's a I Am a Muslim campaign. And these are some yes. of the prejudices and these are some of the stigma that this campaign hopefully will get rid of. Because, again, uh, you know, I've been friends with a lot of Jewish and a lot of uh, Muslim people, uh, Christian people as well. And while they know you, they understand your character, they've known us for years and years, and they know that we are not capable of such acts. Unfortunately, those people that are committing these terrorist acts, whether it's ISIS or the Front or Boko Haram are doing it in the name of Islam, and this is enveloping all the people and 
changing their mindset that all Muslims are responsible for this. That is unacceptable. So hopefully that, uh, you know, this campaign, I Am Muslim campaign, can, uh, you know, get rid of such stigma that is currently associated with us. Uh, you know, Muslim is, uh, Islam is a religion of peace. Muslims are people of peace. Unless one person goes there and does something stupid or something really, uh, 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 no, atrocious, which then gets labeled on the Muslim community. Um, you know, there's a phrase, there's a phrase that goes, that says, uh, Islam is a peace, uh, Islam is a religion of peace. But some Muslims may not be uh, peaceful people because they are totally twisted, they, they've got their own agenda, and they do things in the name of Islam, which is totally contradictory to the teachings of Islam. Also, I'm very interested to know what the new London Mayor Sadiq Khan had to say about this particular incident. Any idea? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not really sure. I haven't uh, gone as far as checking it out. But again, uh, you know, at one stage I was proud that uh, a Muslim has uh, been the mayor of London. But I've been seeing tweets and I've been seeing reports of, of him uh, doing or attending certain functions. So I'm going to reserve that right until I, uh, uh, you know, find out exactly what his comments or what his take on the matter is. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Faisal Patel chatting to us all the way from Istanbul this evening. Faisal, shukran so much for joining us tonight. And I hope the trip is productive and we can chat about it hopefully next week you can give us some feedback uh, feedback from your point of view um, and uh, all the best inshallah safe travels assalamu alaikum absolutely